since we're in the studio and not the courtroom today, we are about to break all of Judge Carroll's Chapter 39 rules. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Nicole, and I am here with Jack, and today we are continuing our conversation about the Maya Kowalski case. But today, we are honored to be in the presence of Jennifer Anderson, whose law firm represented the Kowalski family in their civil lawsuit. Thank you so much for taking your time to be here with us today, Jennifer. Of course. I appreciate the time. Yeah, we appreciate your time. It's awesome to have you. Yeah, your family has invested six years into this. You should probably be relaxing, but I'm sure all of you are tied up in all kinds of craziness. Well, we enter into a judgment, official judgment on the 15th. I'm not sure if you're aware, but they're filing all kinds of motions and attacking the the jurors. And uh, we are aware. (laughs) Yeah, so it's been a lot. And so we're still, you know, plugging away and working. But the day of the verdict, if you were watching just that vindication for Maya and her family, you know, Kyle, gosh, he still breaks my heart heart and Jack, of course. And then Beata, I don't know how that works of her knowing this, but what she did to influence and hopefully make changes has been very impactful. Her act of taking her own life accomplished, unfortunately, exactly what she wanted. Yeah. You know, people say I would jump in front of a bus in order to save my child. That's what she did. I'm going to really start with the most difficult question first. I need to know what your favorite beverage is at Starbucks. <laughs> I heard you say that question the other day. I'm an iced coffee kind of girl. I don't like the warm beverages anymore. I like the iced, iced mocha. I think they looked at me like I was crazy today when I got my iced brown sugar shaken espresso. But I think when it's too hot, I burn myself. I don't have like the coordination that I used to. Well, and I can drink it faster when it's iced. If it's really hot, you can't drink it that fast. And I'm like, I need it now. <laughs> yeah. And by the time you can, it's like cold and lukewarm. And you're like, I should have started with ice. Right? Exactly. I do feel like that if I'm making coffee at home, I'm making hot coffee and then, you know, mom life. I'm still drinking the same cup of coffee from like seven o'clock this morning, but at least it's in a cup that keeps it hot. I stole my husband's. I made him a cup of coffee this morning and it's later. I'm like, ooh, I should have a couple. So it was like lukewarm and I'm like, it's good. (laughs) Yeah. Moms can drink coffee at any temperature (laughs) when they need the caffeine bad enough. Exactly. We understand that you and your husband, Greg, are partners at the law firm that represented the Kowalski family for the past six years. I am kind of a little curious what your dynamic looks like at home. I think I heard you say somewhere that you homeschool your children. Yeah, I'm an idiot. (laughs) So I have a a 23-year-old that I adopted. She is the daughter of Greg's first marriage. So I ended up adopting her and she is now at MIT getting her PhD in virology. And I homeschooled her for one year during her sophomore year. And I remember the school, they're like, oh, she'll never make it if she gets homeschooled. And of course, she graduated from Duke and now is at MIT. So that was false. And that's Greg's alma mater, right? Duke is Greg's alma mater? Yes. So she ended up going there um, and then she got into MIT. So she's on our second year right now. We have a 12-year-old daughter. Um, I homeschooled her last year kind of as, I don't know, say an experiment, but it was. And then my nine-year-old son, boys are very different than girls. She's very independent. My son is, oh, I dropped my pencil. Where did it go? It's rolling on the floor. You know, they, they get a little bit more distracted and 
oh, there's a bird flying in the sky. No, no, baby, we're, we're working on math. So yeah, I'm an idiot. And I decided this year of all years, I would homeschool both of them. But um, three days a week, they go into a Christian co-op. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, they're in a Christian co-op and Thursday and Friday, they're mine. So <laughs> I really like independence. And that's one of the things I like in my children. So I just make the list and I put little checkbox. I'm like, you know, if you need help, I'll help you. But otherwise you need to do it on your own. So yeah, we're on that adventure. You know, a close friend of Jack and I's, uh, two close friends actually homeschool their children. And I have been waffling about it, but I'm a single mom and I just don't know that I could make it work as a single mom who works with all their appointments and everything. But it's frustrating because I think it would be the best thing for one of my kiddos. I had the benefit of on my mom's side of the family. She's the oldest of seven and two of her sisters had a bunch of kids and they started their own co-op, basically school. And all of those kids are either doctors or engineers. I don't think any of them became lawyers. Um, doctors are engineers. <laughs> you know, everybody's like, oh, they don't get socialized. They completely get socialized. You know, my son is on a swim team and again, through the co-op, which I think is, you know, makes it more beneficial because then they are in a classroom setting, you know, and you know, my daughter, my, my 12 year old right now had to spend the night last night. Um, cause today is homeschool day. So, so she had one of her friends from the co-op spend the night. They're going to have to do their work, but it's nice having that community. So, you know, what made it more difficult this year is because Greg was gone for three months. I don't have any family in this area. I was a single mom the past three months. I'm like, holy cow. How did you do that? <laughs> I went crazy. Um, I had my parents. They were wonderful. They came, they flew in for a week. And that's the week that I was able to go down to Venice and be there. Of course, I got sick on the plane. So I couldn't attend trial in person, which is what I wanted to do. But I didn't want to get everybody sick. So I stayed away. Yeah. So I went down there while my parents were wonderfully here for a week. And then I came back and just did my thing. And again, because of the platforms like Law and Lumber and Recovery Addict. And I was able to have in the background the trial streaming while I was doing what I had to do. And so when Greg would call me with questions or what do you think I should do? I was up to date. So that's how that kind of worked. That's great. I have a question. I know you guys are at a, you know, you have a smaller firm. Um, how many associates do you have at the firm? I think I saw four partners total. How many associates and paralegals? Total. I think we're about 10 and then paralegals, three paralegals. And then, then we have the secretaries. So again, it's a small firm right now. So we got the North Florida Jacksonville office, and then we have the Boca Raton office. And then we have one guy, uh, Joey, that is now over in the Tampa area. I think I even mentioned to Jack, like they have got to have associates somewhere back at the office. Like there's got to be more than just these two guys and this one paralegal, you know, working on legal questions because there were so many legal arguments, you know, at, at the beginning of every day, the attorneys can't reasonably, you know, direct examine, cross-examine witnesses and deal with all the motion practice that's happening outside the hearing of the jury and, you know, all the other things that really are involved in, in the trial. I'm sure you saw Samantha Lawrence, who became an attorney during the middle of the trial, which was fun. And one of the issues was, and I warned Greg about this, at the beginning, he was trying to do almost everything legal-wise by himself until, you know, he brought Nick in more. I was like, Greg, you, you can't do this by yourself. You're going to burn out. You're going to miss stuff. And that's one of his biggest regrets is that when he was questioning Beattie, it was not his best performance and he still kicks himself about it. It didn't matter because Beattie, <laughs> she dug her own grave. Well, and the jury took over for him. That was brilliant. I love that. <laughs> Yes, that was and that was another thing is I think I've explained this to other people. Greg did that kind of on purpose. Once he learned how inquisitive the jury was, he's like, you know what? I might just step back and let them ask their own questions the way they want to ask it. So, no, we had a team behind us, not a large team. We were definitely not, you know, Bill Ward Henderson. And what people don't understand, they're like, oh, plaintiff's lawyers, they're they're so greedy. And six years, we're not getting a dime. 
We're not getting paid every month by the insurance company. And we've asked for discovery on how much they've been paid over this past six years. They're going to object, of course, but it'll be very interesting when we see how much over six years that they've been paid. We had one settlement when we settled with Sally Smith. Uh, so we got some money from the family and we're able to cover some costs, but nothing like six years of our time. Greg and I, we are the primary owners of the firm. You know, we have other partners, but we're the ones that bankroll everything. So it's our money. And I, I'm sure you've probably heard the story, but, you know, we lived in a pretty nice house on the intercoastal and we downsized because we had to take the stress off and we wanted to continue with this. So we, <laughs> the house that we bought, the people bought our house on the intercoastal. So we kind of flip-flopped, but we were able to buy this with cash and not have that stress of paying, you know, a mortgage every month, but it was a downsize, you know, my, and it's driving my husband nuts because he's, <laughs> he loves his books and he loves his guitars. If you, you could see my room, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 guitars in this room. And so it's this little tiny office and, um, but it's driving him bonkers and all of his books that he loves because he was a history major are all out in the hallway. We have no bookshelves or space for it. So we'll be looking to go somewhere <laughs> to be able to let him have his space. <laughs> so speaking of how this has affected your family, I know I'm just someone watching and it affected my family. I, like my little kids are like, is that trial over yet? You know, my husband's <laughs> like, oh, the trial's on again. You know, they've gotten so excited when there was an off day. What has it been like for your kids to not just have their dad missing for a period of time, but to really go through the highs and lows of this for the past six years with you? They know everything about Kowalski. And what's interesting was well, a couple of interesting aspects. But my 12-year-old, nothing scares her. She's a, she's a very brave kid. She won't watch the documentary. I've offered several times and she's like, nope, I know everything. So she refuses. Um, they were all there when the Netflix crew was at our house for days on end and came in here and filmed them. There's so much more footage. And then it was interesting on the day that the verdict was read, they were home because it was a Thursday. So it was a homeschool day and they were standing in the background. They were like screaming along with me because they knew how important it was. And over the years, you know, especially with the advent of uh, Zoom, we were always like, okay, we're Zooming quiet. And so they learned to be quiet in the background. It was bizarre. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. It was bizarre. I think it's so great that they were able to see their mom and their dad care so much <laughs> and advocate so heavily for other children and other families. I think that is a much more valuable lesson than any school or, you know, co-op or anything like that can really teach them. The one negative, my, uh, my 12 year old, has learned to be a lawyer. And so now she tries to lawyer me all the time. And she writes up contracts if she wants something and she writes lines down and I have to do a signature and agreement. I'm like, oh gosh, I've created a monster. So there's bonuses and <laughs> negatives to that. You've mentioned a bunch of your family, not any of them being lawyers. Maybe your daughter will go on to... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so no, all right, here's a funny story that you guys don't know. My father is also an attorney, former Marine. So he served in the Marine Corps. My mother was a nurse in the Navy. But when he retired, he did some police work for a little while, but he had some injuries. And I was in my third year of law school at Stetson. And uh, my dad applied, got in. So he moved in with me and was the first year when I was the third year. So we went to the same law school. <laughs> he he became an attorney. It's like a retirement role. He helps out definitely, but it's not like a full-time thing. That is super cool. It was the most bizarre thing because, the, you know, the funny stories was I was, you know, a very serious student. I'd come home and he'd have the TV on. I'm like, dad, you can't watch TV. You're in your first year. You've got to be studying. And he's like, oh yeah. So I'd have to turn the TV off. It was like role reversal. And I remember him studying for the bar exam. And this is a true story. It's, it's called, the, there's bar review courses. They're called Barbary. So a couple of days beforehand, I went and I was like, okay, how's it going? I was going to like quiz him on some stuff. And I opened up one of his Barbary books and it creaked. You know how when you open up books that have never been opened, it creaked. I said, dad, have you studied? And he kind of looked at me and I'm like, haven't you been going to the courses? He never lies. And he said, um, actually, every time I went to the Barbary course, I decided to go to the movies instead. So he watched the movies all the time. Like, Dad, it was funny. That is hilarious. <laughs> I heard that you were a guardian ad litem volunteer. 
Is that yes. correct? So you weren't an attorney with the Guardian program. You were a volunteer. Okay. Correct. Since you've had that experience and because we know what that world is like, people don't generally do this without a reason because it's hard and it's heartbreaking and it's traumatic. So what was it that made you want to do that? Okay, I can't claim to be totally philanthropic in college you had to do some sort of volunteer work and they gave you like a list of options and i saw this guardian ad litem program and again this is 22 years ago i was like all right children helping children families i'll do this and so i went and took the course and in the middle you know because you got to do all this training they then offered me a job a part-time job as a secretary for the program there in santa rosa county I was like, okay, you know, I needed money. And so I became a volunteer and then a secretary and I sucked at being a secretary. I'll just be honest, not because of not trying, but I just stink at that kind of stuff. I couldn't even spell the word secretary. Um, I guess there was a pilot and he, I guess, got frustrated, I guess is the best way to put it. And he picked up this child and slammed the child's head into a wall and became brain damaged. And he got arrested, of course, and all that. So that was my very first case. That was great. And then my second case was three girls whose dad was an evil monster, committed uh, acts on them and the cousin that lived next door and had an axe. And I'll never forget because, you know, you meet people, they just give up vibes of evil. The guy scared me, you know, because I had to interview everybody. So that was my second case. Like, well, this is this is great. Then I moved and, you know, moved on, but I returned as a volunteer, had a couple cases, again, horrific, horrific abuse um, of these two little girls. Father ended up in prison, killing the mother. I mean, it was just terrible. Then my next case was a girl, again, abused horrifically by her father, who then went overseas to become a teacher for kids in the Philippines or something. I'm like, oh, that's great. I know what he's doing. But she's the one that behind my back with my husband nominated me for, I guess, an award or whatever. You won a service award by the bar? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how that, <laughs> that was. That was unique. So yeah, when I heard about this story with Maya, I'm like, I've seen real abuse stories, you know? Right. This is just a mother advocating for her child and listening to doctors. How is this somebody who can't even see her child? It was um, surreal. I am a guardian ad litem as well. I have been for the past six years. I wondered if this kind of caught your attention because this was a mother presenting facts about her child and her medical needs that were, you know, well known with other doctors. And now you have this hospital crying abuse when it was documented that they had been treating her by doctors for so long. I had wondered if that was like a connection point for you. So it was interesting. So the case came in to me on my email through attorneys that we had worked on in a helicopter crash case that my husband and I had worked on. Deborah Salisbury contacted them on the Pelletier case and said, do you know any good trial attorneys in Florida? And so They knew of us because we worked with them before. So this lawyer contacted me, sent me an email, gave me the basics. I'm like, this is interesting, but it involved kind of med mal and we don't do med mal. I've never done med mal, but I said, okay, we'll set up a conference call. And then we talked to Deborah Salisbury and she made such a compelling, interesting story. We said we'd take it on um, initially and we contacted Howard Hunter and ends up that Greg and Howard Hunter the attorney for the hospital, grew up around the corner from each other in St. Augustine. They didn't know each other because Howard's a couple of years older than Greg. But, you know, Greg's like, oh, I think I'm pretty sure I can get this settled very quickly. You know, we're St. Augustine guys. And Howard pretended, this still makes me angry to this day, pretended that he didn't know anything about this case. He's like, oh, tell me about it. When he had been involved from the get-go. So, and then it just went from there. So that's how it, that's how it came into us, just by email and an, a connection through this helicopter crash case that we did years ago with this law firm in Boston. We don't advertise. We're not a Morgan and Morgan or we don't do that stuff. It's always by referral. So correct me if I'm wrong. Hunter obviously was involved when Maya was there. It seemed to me from the information I got, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, he was kind of one of the people directing risk management in a lot of the things that they did that were inappropriate. Is that correct? He was on a lot of emails involved with risk management, the hospital, attending court, making suggestions after Beata passed, saying that he still didn't think that Maya should go home to her family 
and wanted to send her, I forget where, Cincinnati, uh, places far, far away from her remaining family. And he was at the center of it. I think I even saw a document. It was an email, maybe, that he had recommended what I think the state attorney should put in the court orders. Is that correct? He made a lot of recommendations the entire time in the underlying case. Unbelievable. (laughs) He was at the center of a lot of it. So was Ethan Shapiro. The reason why we kind of gravitated towards Ethan is because he was nicer in context to Maya during depots, you know, because she went through, I think, a total of five than David Hughes, uh, because David David was uh, not the best. And so we switched over to Ethan and Maya liked him better. Because he, you know, has that low voice and talked very calmly. Patrick is who he sounds like, right? <laughs> there's, there's been some memes about some, some stuff. But Ethan was also very heavily involved in the underlying. So it was Ethan and um, Hunter. Yeah. You know, I know everybody's very interested in the post-trial motions and, and all that stuff from the trial that just happened. But I think because of the nature of Jack and I being foster parents and kind of living in this world where we're dealing with DCF and other things, I can say I am much more interested in the Chapter 39 stuff. Judge Carroll obviously didn't allow that into the courtroom, but we are not in his courtroom. So I am hoping maybe uh, you can answer some of our questions about that underlying case, especially with your gal experience. You definitely have some expertise. This was not allowed in because it was chapter 39 stuff. We were able to get, you know, the call reports. So the first one, it got screened out. And so we have that. They confirmed that she had CRPS through her doctor. So it got screened out. Then they went to Sally Smith and our theory, and I think it's been proven, is that Smith's like, you need to bolster this some more and do another call so that I can get officially involved. So what we did is a comparison of what they put in the medical records of what they reported to the hotline system and what the hotline people said they reported. Completely different stories. They lied in the medical records. The hotline report, you know, the mom won't let her eat a donut and all this crazy stuff. And then the medical records, it was much more laid back and, oh, we just let them know, you know, there's some issues we're concerned about. And I did a comparison because I do hot docs chronologies. I'm sure you do the same thing. Yep. So I had a 47 page hot docs chronology because I read every single page of everything except the medical records. I had Katie do that, my medical paralegal. I did a comparison of those two things. I'm like, what they said to the to the state system that got this case opened, completely the opposite of what they put in their medical records of what they reported. That's what happened. That wasn't able to come in. The jury never heard that. Nobody knows that. Because the judge didn't allow it. But that's what happened. What baffles me is that this continued to be an open case in the Chapter 39 case when there were medical records that were contradictory to the hotline report. I don't know if the rules have changed from then until now, but you know, now a report gets called in. Once it's accepted, they have 60 days to investigate it, open, close. And then the case kind of proceeds on. If the case is open and the child is sheltered, then, you know, parents are immediately given a visitation schedule and like all the rules that they have to go by, you know, they have to go to an arraignment and accept a case plan and all of these things. And here, that does not appear at all what happened. Beata refused to sign the case plan. So did Jack. It was a a joint decision. They wanted to fast track uh, the trial proceedings. But what happened was Howard Hunter et al. They kept saying, oh, we need more discovery. Oh, we need to do depositions. And then they never said it. And unfortunately, Judge Hayworth bought their their story. And so it kept continuing things. And that was the problem, despite the best effort of Deborah Salisbury and the other attorneys that were working on this, it just kept getting pushed off. And so another misconception was that the January hearing, I think defense counsel said, oh, if she had only waited a couple of weeks, she'd have had a court date. My complete memory, and again, I might be wrong, but trial setting wasn't set until April. So it was going to be another three, four months before the trial. And then when Beata, for the first time in person, 
saw her daughter and how much she had deteriorated, knowing that you can die and had known of people who had died from CRPS, she's like, my daughter's not going to live another three months because they're not treating her. You know, the saying that the lesions was Maya scratching herself and all that. I literally, during when I went down for that one week, I took pictures. I have them on my phone. Maya was developing more lesions on her legs. Why would she now, all these years later, be faking? I mean, she hit her legs. She always wore, you know, the long pants or whatever. But I saw her, you know, because we were in an informal setting. I'm like, Maya, are you getting the lesions again? She's like, yeah. But I know it was because of the stress and, and everything. As part of this series about Maya, I've been interviewing people who live with CRPS. I learned so much through this trial, but I also I think I learned the most from speaking with these people over the past couple of weeks. My last question for all of them. Do you have any doubt that Maya was suffering from conversion disorder or something other than CRPS? Every single one said, absolutely not. Maya definitely has CRPS. I know what CRPS looks like, and that's what it looks like. Every single one, T to T. What the defense seemed to get wrong is that this trial wasn't about whether she had CRPS or not. It felt like so much of their argument was trying to prove that she did not have CRPS. But even if she had conversion disorder instead of CRPS, all of these things that they did wrong would still have been wrong. One of the interesting things uh, Dr. Kirkpatrick taught me is that even if she has some conversion disorder, that can actually be a component of CRPS. But it's not Munchausen's or Munchausen syndrome by proxy, which is what they were claiming. So you can have, according to Dr. K, and again, I'm not a medical expert, but some conversion and still have CRPS. You can have the psychological component uh, just because what you're going through. There was objective testing, you know, how many four doctors she saw. She had temperature differences in two of her legs, you know, who has temperature differences? This is one of the signs, objective signs. The dystonia during the coma, how did she fake that? Like, come on, man. We kept saying that. We're like, how, how do you fake it when you're literally under anesthesia? So... Yeah. One of the girls I spoke with that has CRPS, um, when we were talking about that, literally like turned her phone down and showed me her legs. She's like, look, my legs look exactly like hers. That's so sad. It is. I think that like for me, like speaking with some of these people that had CRPS and definitely the mom, I'm just I'm so overwhelmed and I feel like I understand the case so much more and why Maya and Beata did some of the things they did. Because sometimes you're like, oh, well, that's that might be a little extreme. And then you hear what this is like and you're like, I would do anything. I would do anything like I've had experiences with my kids where they were suffering from something and I didn't know how to fix it. And you're so desperate to do whatever it takes to fix them. You know, even to the small scale, some of my kids are on medicine in order to live like a normal human life that are like higher than an adult dosage. One of my kids did not sleep last night. He has incredibly bad insomnia. He takes like a grown man dosage of the meds he has to take. And even with that, he was up like like maybe he slept four hours last night. And so for someone else, they might be like, what's wrong with this mom that she's letting her kid be on these like adult drugs and even higher than adult drugs. Every body works differently because of the drugs he was exposed to. He needs different medicines than someone else might need in order to make it work. Do you want my son to go three weeks without sleeping? Because we've done that before. It's horrendous, you know? And and so as a mom to kind of see that, it's like, I would do anything. And the more you learn about CRPS, because I really feel like it's very misunderstood, everything just makes a lot more sense. The thing that me... And Nicole and our friends and the social workers that we deal with on a very regular basis are looking at this case and saying, this isn't how things are supposed to go. Unfortunately, it does sometimes, right? You look at this case and you're like, what went wrong to put this family to where they were? Everything went wrong. Like DCF, the judge, the hospital, the child abuse prosecutor, right? Everybody involved completely acted Uh, outside of appropriate behavior and did things that are so either borderline illegal or actually illegal that that's how we ended up where we are. So from your experience working as a gal and um, from your time with this family, like, is there anything that could explain what reason I would say DCF or the judge or the hospital? 
I don't think we can say the hospital. I don't think they had any. They didn't have leadership. No. And they they have their culture of ego and disregard is disgusting. Um, but let's try and look at, you know, who, who we deal with on a regular basis in, in social welfare. Why do you think DCF and the judge made all these absolutely inappropriate decisions? I think the judge was being given poor information. Again, the judge is not a doctor, so he's listening to the hospital's attorneys. There are so many, as you know, really good people that get in to the system, want to help children have good hearts. They get burnout, they, you know, whatever. And then just like anything, there are bad cops, there are bad lawyers, there are bad doctors. So there was just a conglomeration that came together. And the other component to this that I think also needs to change is, you know, in Florida, they have the the private um, like Sunco Center that is a nonprofit. The heads of it are making hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And when we finally obtained the contracts, the way Florida set it up, at least with Suncoast, was every five years, they kind of renewed the contract. They checked it every single year. The more cases of abuse, the more money they got. The less cases of abuse, the less money they got. So Pinellas County is number one in the entire state of Florida, of all the counties, for turning in. And Sally Smith, you know, as I'm sure you've heard and learned, she had her own pediatric practice. I think you commented on that to your other podcast. Uh, she would refer, we found out, the, the children that came into the system and then would refer a lot of them to her pediatric practice. So she was not only getting paid by Suncoast in her, in her role, but also as a pediatrician treating children that were turned in. It was just, so it's the usuals in, in life. It's usually power and money, right? And I think, unfortunately, it was just a big whirlwind and bad leadership by the hospital, absolutely. And the power that Sally Smith had through the hospital, through Suncoast, and these um, pediatric specialists in, in medical child abuse, I am not a fan of doctors that have real specialties, you know, brain specialists, neurological specialists, a podiatrist, whatever. She can come and say, no, I disagree. I think it's child abuse. And so the people that actually have the specialties, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to put their practice on the line and say, no, hopefully some do, but most of them are just, okay, if you're going to say it's child abuse. <laughs> There's got to be a change in that system. Those specialists don't want to be complicit if it were to be child abuse. Right? The fear of it being child abuse is much greater than them saying, no, it could also be X, Y, and Z. I think it's this. Uh, but the fear is there. You know what I also hate is that in our system, if you're a criminal, you're presumed innocent until proven guilty, right? It's the opposite in in these child abuse cases, the parents or the caregiver is presumed guilty until they prove themselves innocent. And that takes and a lot of these families don't have money. They don't have the attorneys. You've seen it. You go into court and they're on a rotating basis like, oh, attorney X. OK, you've got this case. And yeah, it's not fair. And the amount of money that they get paid for the dependency cases is so small that it's really not worth their time. And it, they don't get more money if they work more. Right. Right. They get the same amount of money, whether they work for, you know, an hour. And and I've worked with parents of kids that were in my home to try and reach out to their attorneys. And sometimes they'll go from court to court and make call after call and don't get a return call until they're in the courtroom. And then it doesn't look good because the attorney is like, oh, well, I haven't talked to my client. Uh, We haven't made a connection. It's like, well, that's your fault, dude. I've been on the phone three way with this mom trying to reach out to you. What you're talking about brings up another thing in regards to this powerhouse of the child abuse pediatricians, the hospital, all these people that are screaming abuse, they go into the court and have a shelter hearing to remove the child. What uh, Sally Smith was saying, I think in one of her depositions, or maybe it was in actual court, she said something like, well, it's not my job to show the other side. That's their job. They can get attorneys and doctors and bring them in to have their argument. But the reason that is not fair, because I have seen this personally. Also, we saw it in the Melissa Bright story. By the time you know your kid's being removed, it's already a done deal. 
if you get notice of a shelter hearing, what is it like an hour or two? If even that, like a lot of the times the shelter hearings happens and then somebody shows up with a paper saying they're taking your kid. You didn't have the opportunity to stand up for yourself and to bring your doctors to the table. You don't even have time to hire a lawyer if you could afford it. And usually the people who are in this situation, you know, often don't have the funds or support for that. So by the time you get an attorney and doctors and your side of the story, you're like two, three months down the road and your kid's gone that time. And they've had that additional time to build up that case. It's really not fair to not be across the board looking at all the data when you're presenting these cases. Like, so Sally Smith's opinion that they could have brought their doctor. I'm not sure if you know this because I I know you came in later, but during her dependency trial, were they able to get Dr. K or Dr. Chopra or anybody in to any of the hearings? I don't know if they actually testified. I know they were definitely listed. Defense counsel, if my memory, again, you're right, I was not a part of it. My memory serves is that they kept putting off actually bringing them in live. So yeah, they had the opportunity, but the defense counsel kept pushing things off so that the judge didn't hear that kind of testimony. And and going back to your point, because it kind of struck me, I'm sure you heard this during the trial by Jack, is he was literally in there cleaning up poor Maya, defecating. He had a nurse in there, and then the nurse left, and then Dr. Smith came in, pretending to be one of the hospital doctors, asked him some questions, and he's like, you know, cleaning up poop, and uh, leaves, and then the nurse comes in and says, okay, you have to leave now. What? Where's that opportunity? It's just sprung on them. There's no there's no opportunity at that minute. Show up to court in a month and, and have your argument then. Meanwhile, your child is without you for a month. And then it just steamrolls from there. Yes. Mm-hmm. Initially, both had a no contact order. He got some visitation back within two weeks, maybe. It was within weeks. A lot of the times, if there's a concern about someone being abusive, to me, this is like there wasn't enough to show that there was you know, something going on. But beyond that, even if there was a world where this was going on with Beata, why didn't they initially try and place her, if not with the dad, with family members? I That is a good question. I do not know. If it was so unsafe, they left another child in that home. Mm-hmm. They didn't shelter that child who was younger. Why not? Another good question. <laughs> Mind boggling. I know there was no contact order. At some point, there was changes to that no contact order made. Beata never saw her daughter. I personally fight weekly because I have to bring children sometimes into situations with their parents that are genuinely not safe. They still get to see their kids. They're entitled. They have the right. And she never got to see her child. I mean, I've had kids where they are like there is solid evidence of extreme. I had this one boy come covered from skull to toe bruises, finger marks around the neck. Two days later, we're doing visits. When there is concern for safety, you do supervised visits. You do therapeutic visits. You don't not do visits at all. Like a no contact order in the dependency case is not just rare. Like you need extreme solid evidence to do something like that. And I'm pretty sure that Florida statute requires for the agencies to do everything possible to maintain visitation. Again, there was so much deference given to the hospital and what the hospital's attorneys were advocating for and Sally Smith. Then you got BD as part of the hospital, basically imposing her interpretation and um, will on how and when Maya would ever have contact with, you know, her mother by phone or eventually I think she got a couple Skype sessions. I don't know how they set that up. Um, her dad who got turned away many times, her brother, and then a couple of friends and a teacher, but everyone else, you know, again, no priest, <laughs> the priest couldn't show up. What? <laughs> it's just mind boggling. I, and I guess BD lied in one of the, and saying the court order said no, con- I don't know. There was just so much, there were so many lies. Okay, how did they manage to keep Kathy Beatty's arrest for child abuse out of the trial? Like, what? Like, that was mind blowing. It was an arrest only. And so, under Florida law, just an arrest only, you can't bring that into evidence. So, that was just something that 
we all knew and the judge knew about, but we couldn't bring it before the jury. I'm really curious about this. And even if you know this, you might not be able to answer, but has anyone confirmed whether or not when the jury came back with their questions and said, we're not going to be able to give you enough gas money to get to court, if that was in reference to Kathy Beatty's quote story about not providing the gas card to um, that family and that that's why she got written up? You know what? I never made that connection. I didn't even think about that. Because at first I'm like, gas card, what? This makes no sense. Because when she told that story, it was so ridiculous and so blown up to be like, oh, what a what a caring person she was. I she was- never, you know what? That might be brilliant. I forgot about that. I'm going to write that down because that confused me too when I heard it. I did not ever catch that. That might make more sense. I think I made a TikTok video about it. I'll send it to you. But I, yeah. I when I realized that, I'm like, because all these people are looking at the jury and, you know, the bus stop comments and talking about, oh, like their the verbiage. I'm like, have you not paid attention to this jury? This jury. They this are jury. So, <laughs> they are so brilliant. And, you know, I'm, I'm from Sarasota. I grew up there. I moved there when I was in like fifth grade and lived there until I went to college. It's not an area in Venice, Sarasota. It's a retired community and it's very, um, for the most part, it's very posh. So for people to think that these people are dumb rednecks who don't know what I'm like, pay attention to what they're doing in this trial and the questions they're asking. They're verbiage just for a reason. They're either trying to make us laugh or like, I, mm-hmm. I think a lot of it was like a jest or um, levity, right? Yeah, there, there was moments of levity from the, the jurors. Yeah, it, they were kind of funny. I was just curious if anybody has confirmed that yet, because I'm like, that is freaking brilliant. I need to know that that's why they did that. I was really upset when a recovery addict, um, because, you know, he was able to listen until the judge figured out that he could hear everything and was relaying it. But I was like, oh, because I couldn't be there in person. So I wasn't hearing it live. Yeah, I was I was impressed. Very proud of the jury. Obviously, they did a great job. They did their duty. And I hate these motions that they filed and attacking a juror's wife. And who's going to want to sit on a jury if you think counsel is going to go after the text messages between you and your spouse or significant other? You know, it's interesting, too, because they're filing all these post-trial motions. But legally speaking, a jury being interviewed or a juror being interviewed, especially when you have a duty as an officer of the court to bring any sort of jury violations to the attention of the court at the time time. it is known. You cannot wait till the time is convenient for you. Exactly. And for your case, it needs to be brought to the attention immediately. And I think there's enough proof here from what I've seen that the defense knew or suspected or whatever, much earlier than when they filed their motions. Yes. They were waiting for the verdict to come out. There, there's a lot of uh, waiver issues for sure. So, so much of what they're putting in their motion is from these Reddit groups. One of the person is gathering all their evidence based on stu- like they think the cake lady is juror number one's wife. And they're like, oh, we saw her sitting next to Jules on this day and they're posting pictures. And I was like, that's cake lady. That's not juror number one's wife. Right. <laughs> so like at least get it right. If you're going to do your little investigation, somebody was requesting like um, video footage from the hallways and the parking lot because they wanted to catch this lady talking to you guys or something like that. And really they were looking for cake ladies. So the whole thing's ridiculous. As much as we've seen through this trial that Johns Hopkins was so liable for what happened to Maya and her family, it's also obvious that DCF was incredibly liable. I was under the impression that there was initially a civil suit against DCF as well. Can you share or do you know why that was abandoned? Yeah, I'll give a little bit of insight. It was tactical. There's also a lot of statutory limitations and protections against DCF. And we didn't want to kind of like what the judge was doing, mixing the chapter 39 stuff with the private issues. Again, our complaint, well, I forget how many pages that ended up being 80 because um, so many things happened. And of course, the judge did a good job in whittling things down uh, and making it more simplified. But we knew it was already complicated enough as it was. This was never about the money for this family. And if you saw, I'm sure you did, the reaction of everyone, it was just give us a yes, validate us. I did the same thing. I burst into tears just like Maya and Kyle and Jack did and everybody in the gallery. It didn't even matter. I wasn't even listening to it. I truly, I wasn't listening to amounts. I was like, 
we got a yes. You know, they, they validated what we've been saying all along. And then of course we got yes, 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 yes. So we got super validated. <laughs> I was in an IEP meeting and I've literally been staring at my phone for days nonstop. And I'm like, oh, the one time it comes out of this IEP <laughs> meeting that I can't like be rude about. But, and I think I made a TikTok video about this too, of Maya watching the verdict. Every time they said yes, her body reacted, right? Her body reacted and her and Kyle too. But when they said the amounts, she wasn't even listening. Like you could tell, no. like she reacts at the yes. And then she doesn't react again till the next yes. Which strikes me about this, especially existing in social work, right? Where you see injustice a lot, unfortunately, often against these families who don't have the means or support to defend themselves. It is so hard to even want to seek justice. When something happens that's unfair, that's an abuse of power, most people just walk away and say, you know, that really sucked. What can I do to move on in my life? And the fact that nobody has been brave enough to stand up to Sally Smith, to Kathy Beatty, to the system that is doing this to multiple families, except for the 17-year-old girl who started standing up when she was, what, 12? Like, So let this girl, this brave, incredibly strong girl, be the one to lead other people to be brave and to stand up when they see injustice and to not just shut their mouth and walk away and be like, hey, you know, what can I do anyways against against the big corporations or, quote, nonprofits that have this. And I'm just blown away that this was led by this girl. I have to tell you, that's been probably one of the harder parts of all this. We are obviously and have been getting uh, since this became public emails and you know phone calls and so many people that want help. But it has been just a single case, and we've got the Kushner case that we're working on next. But um, it is incredibly taxing, not only on us. I'm going to put us aside because that's our job although it does affect everything, but on the family having to go through this, these children having to sit through all these multiple depots, the dad having to do it, all this discovery. And, you know, we did I think it was 50 plus motions for summary judgment responses. And the, the family has to help with that. I feel terrible that we can't take on everybody's story because we hear their stories. And I, and I write them. I try to personally say, I am so sorry for what happened to you. We can't help right now. I want them to know that they're heard. I think that's the the big thing that Maya taught me. She just wanted to be heard. So I I try to respond. I I feel terrible. We can't take on cases like this over and over again. But it's I think I would literally have a heart attack if I had to do another one. (laughs) Well, if, if it makes you feel better, what I would say to you about that is that because you have done this, which everybody knows this case has been groundbreaking because you have done this. And obviously it has put a great strain on your family to the point where you even had to downsize your living conditions. Yeah. But because you did this, even though you can't take the other cases, other attorneys and other firms are going to be more willing to. And that's because of what you guys did, which is incredible. (laughs) Thank you. Generally in DCF cases, a child is sheltered. Then if a child is reunified, the case is monitored for approximately six months. Then there's a case closure hearing. Everything is then discontinued, right? Or jurisdiction is relinquished. This is the normal life of a DCF case for however long it takes. In this case, there were conditions for return. Maya was no longer allowed to have ketamine, which is the one thing that helped her CRPS. So how is DCF monitoring these conditions for return that were imposed on them post-reunification? Are there case managers still involved? So that's the the misconception. So it was closed out. The case was dropped once Chopra and the other expert uh, filed their reports. The case was closed out. But during that time span, the judge imposed in order to go home to your family, no ketamine use. But the family, the remaining family, was terrified at that point. Uh, so they're like, we're not even going to risk it. The children for a long time, refused to even answer the doorbell because they were afraid somebody was going to come to the door and take them away. So they tried to stay away from doctors as much as they could. The, the Not using the ketamine for treatment, even though Maya was in severe pain, you know, still screaming at night. 
she said, no, not going to risk it. The dad said, nope, not going to risk it because they were terrified that they'd be torn apart again. So it was more of a self-imposed thing. Once the case was closed out, there was no monitoring. They were just in, in complete fear. Maya turns 18 real soon here. December 10th, I think. Yeah. Has that fear waned enough that she is willing once she's an adult and DCF is, she's less fearful of DCF. Is she wanting to try the treatment that actually works? I don't know what she's going to do. The relapses come and go, as you know. So I leave that up to her. The fear is definitely, especially since the judgment going away. The problem is, of course, you know, you can never erase your medical records. So it's always going to be there that she was potential Munchausen's by proxy, you know, conversion disorder that's in her record forever. And so there's always going to be a dubiousness by certain providers, not all, but certain providers of believing her whenever she has issues in the future. So that's going to be a problem. But the verdict definitely gave her some strength. You know, and they still live in the same house where Yada lost her life. And so they're looking to hopefully get the judgment eventually so they can have money to move. I don't even know how they have functioned in that home. They avoid the garage, at least the children do, as much as possible. They, they can't. They can't go in there. One of the things that families fear after dealing with DCF is that it could happen again, which is clearly what they've been dealing with as well. Is the family feeling a sense of relief that she's about to turn 18 or is is that something that has subsided over the years? No, definitely turning 18 is going to be a big factor. But the other bigger factor, I think, is that they could finally seek the psychological help all of them need because the defense advocated for and it was granted that. Within five days of any doctor's visit, you know, dentist visit, whatever, dermatologist, you know, uh, you have to let us know about that visit. So Maya tried to get psychological treatment and, you know, we had to tell them about it. We're like, please, we won't use, you know, Dr. Henschke, who ended up testifying. We won't use her. We won't ask for damages from, you know, whatever payments are made to her, blah, blah, blah. And the defense is like, no, we still want it. So the family has not been able to get the counseling they need to get. So finally, I think the bigger thing is they could finally get counseling because all three of them need it. So we're setting things up and now they're free from defense counsel imposing themselves in on their private lives and getting the mental help that they need. And, you know, because they've been just trucking through the past five, six years. I can't even believe that the judge granted that when it comes to mental health, especially with the phenomenon in our country and the mental health crisis that we have and knowing what these children had been through. For the record, I think he did a phenomenal job. Honestly, really, yeah, I think he, he did. did a phenomenal job, but I didn't know about that order. That is obviously I don't know all the facts and I'm not an attorney, but it is quite mind boggling. We are big fans of Judge Carroll. In the beginning, I remember messaging Nicole multiple times and saying, like, I was really concerned because when I saw like all of what I knew about the case initially, I'm like, this should be a slam dunk. And he was really hard on you guys initially. And I felt like absolutely any op opportunity for him to go one way or the other, he was going with Johns Hopkins. And it was really frustrating for me as someone who is not a lawyer. The only thing I know about the law is what I see in dependency courtrooms. And, you know, I don't understand a lot of that sometimes. So I was so upset. And Nicole was like, no, listen, let this play out. Like he needs Needs to be fair. And if anything, it's going to help the plaintiffs if the judge is being tough on them, because, you know, it needs to be fair. Like nobody wants to think that a judge is like siding with the plaintiffs. So I did feel better and I grew to love him. And I remember in the beginning, I'm like, why does it so why does it his wife make him shave that little tuft in the top? And by the end, I love him so much. If that tuft ever goes, I'm just going to cry. I love every <laughs> little bit of like the way he runs a courtroom and, and even like his five minutes, like I was watching Watching last night when when Hunter said, I thought I buried this Dracula years ago. The best line ever. <laughs> I can't believe he said that. I got away with it. And then, you know, but he said that. And and I think right then was when um, Judge Carroll was like, I need five minutes and just came back totally refreshed. I'm very impressed with his ability to do that. He has a he has a great demeanor and a little side story. He and I worked at the Florida Supreme Court at the same time. 
I was working as a law intern uh, for Chief Justice Lewis at the time. And he was working as a law clerk, which is the one that you go for two years um, for justice. It was so we were there. I don't remember him at all, but we were there at the same time because we didn't interact. But when I was looking at his background, I was like, oh, my gosh, we were there at the same time. <laughs> so that was kind of funny. I think that a lot of the times when people have experiences in their childhood that they want to move forward in their life and do something to help other people. And especially because we know how absolutely brilliant Maya is, the world is waiting to see what she's going to do in her life. And I think a lot of the times people want to go and like advocate for people who look like what they look like. But then also some people are so traumatized by it that they're like, I will do anything but anything that has to do with that. So I was just curious if you knew if she has any interest or inspiration based on her experiences that she wants to do any type of advocacy work for either people with CRPS or, you know, children who whose families are mistreated by the system. I can't speak fully for her, but I know she does have interest. Um, she's she's actually in finals this week and she's working on, she's getting her associate's degree at the same time she's graduating from high school. Of course she is. <laughs> And went through a ridiculous, awful, draining trial. Yeah, exactly. So she's getting her associate's degree at the same time she's getting her high school degree. And then I think she's going to take some time. But I know because I, I was speaking with her, she's going to be doing some interviews starting, I think, next week. But she needed you know, to get through finals because she's, you know, she I think she's number one or two in her class out of like 560 students. I know she's brilliant. Because she initially thought about going to Duke and all that, but I think she needs a little bit of a break. But I know she does want to be a voice again because she's so well spoken and people take well to her demeanor because she's not aggressive. She just says things like they are. I imagine because she's so adamant on having the voice going out there for her mother that she'll still continue on with that in some capacity. I don't know what it's going to be, but she doesn't know what it's going to be. So. And that's maybe good. <laughs> yeah. I remember a lot of people when they saw her testify were like, oh, she was so coached. She was so coached. That doesn't look like coaching to me. If that was coaching when she was being crossed, she might be prepared in like the offhand stuff. There would be cracks. This is a child. You know, there's only so much coaching you can do. And what I saw was a brilliant and passionate young lady. The only coaching we gave her was tell the truth. Just tell your story. You know, we gave her ideas. You know, they might ask you about X, Y, Z, but um, we never told her what to say. That was all from her heart. And that's what we told her the entire time. It's just tell the truth. You can never get in trouble. Just tell the truth because there's nothing, there's nothing for you to hide. There was no more preparing that you could have done than what that girl did to herself every single day in preparing for this. Mm -hmm. She's yeah. brilliant. She's articulate. She prepared herself. At the very end, you probably saw she got mad at Greg because she wanted to come out and do the <laughs> response. So she actually, you know, kind of took control at, at one point. And Greg's like, all right, do you want to go back in the stand? Go ahead. Because <laughs> she wanted to, you know, make her points known. So that, yeah. that was actually kind of a funny. And she's like, Greg, I need to do this. He said, okay, Maya. <laughs> that was one of my favorites because it was so gross for them to go that low, for them to have such little understanding of CRPS. Also, this is a hospital, right? For them to have such little understanding of CRPS, but to think that somebody is like, they, it's like they thought she was paralyzed. There were so many things they said where I'm like, do they think someone with CRPS is paralyzed? Like she can't move around in her bed to try and reach for something. So she shouldn't ever leave her house. The fact that she went to homecoming, that must have been really hard. And in none of the pictures was she dancing on a table. She was sitting with her friends. It was just disgusting for them to try and make that. She didn't get that dress until the day of because she didn't know if she would be well enough to, to go. And she felt bad. Her boyfriend, Jean-Luc is his name. Really nice kid. He's a really nice kid. But, you know, he had bought the tickets and she was like feeling so guilty, but she had to wait until she knew if she's going to have a good day or a bad day. Three days ago, we were supposed to do something and she goes, I just can't do it. I'm having one of my bad days. I'm like, got yeah. it. Don't. <laughs> just, so that's what she does is she kind of goes day by day because she doesn't know if she's going to wake up and have a bad day or if it's going to be one of the good days. And I said, just let this girl be a teenager for yeah. once you know let her be a child and she testified that she was at the dance for an hour i believe because she did not feel good enough yeah yeah i know 
I hope they felt very, very, very tiny. Oh, I, I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it too, because of their egos. Was it you or was it Kat who asked me recently, do you think this was a problem then, but not a problem now? To me, like you can't watch this trial and they're continuing this ego and this like we're in charge. Everything we say is golden. All our doctors are the best. The way that their lawyers are acting is kind of what I've gotten, how they were acting. So for somebody to think that they've changed in that time frame and now they've you know recognized the errors of their ways and they're better, it doesn't seem that way at all to me so i'm keeping my kids away from there (laughs) i told greg i'm like we can't drive over the bridge down there or anything because can you imagine what would happen if my children ended up in the hospital they'd be like oh the undersons (laughs) i I will have to say i'll have to i guess end with this i want to say and i think i said it previously there are the good people and the bad people there are a lot of great providers and good people at John Hopkins Alterlands Hospital. And I'm not going to take any of that away from them. I think there was extremely poor management. And unfortunately, it works from the top down. I think Dr. Cochran just talked about that. And it's true. If you have poor leadership management, it unfortunately filters down. And so what are people supposed to do? The, the regular, the poor nurses that are coming in and just want to do their job and do a good thing or social workers that want to come in and do a good thing. So I'm not going to take anything away. You know, I laugh sometimes about things, but I don't want to take away from the professionalism and, and the good workers at that hospital. It's just management uh, has a lot to work on still. And again, hopefully there, there's finally a wake up call and they make some changes. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.